Well, good morning. It's a privilege for me to share with you all today from the Word of God. It's a privilege for Karen and I to have joined you this weekend, Friday night and Saturday, and tonight we're going to be, I'm going to be with the men, really looking forward to that. It's a real privilege, and here's why. Heritage has been a very vital part of our lives since you began to meet and gather as a church. Karen and I came on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew in the United States, in 1978, and shortly after that, you formed as a church, and like Marty said earlier, my dad was your first um, music director, and Karen and I happened to be at your very first service in the living room of Dr. and Mrs. Herndon. So, you all have ministered uh, to us through prayer, generosity, finances, friendship, more than anything. It means so much to us for all those years, and we're super grateful. Uh, Today, I'd just like to briefly introduce my family to you. We've been career missionaries for 42 years. I know that's hard to believe. I started uh, my mission career in kindergarten. That's why I look so young. Just kidding. But Karen and I came into the ministry 42-plus years ago. We have three children and six grandchildren. You can read where we have ministered. But the focus of our ministry now is basically twofold. We focus on every uh, follower of Jesus to become competent and to normalize sharing the gospel where they live, work, learn, and play, and how to make disciples because we want to make Jesus known with you, the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America to 160 million lost people in our country. We want to make Jesus known. In order for that to happen, every follower needs to engage, and we want to help them be prepared, ready, confident. The second focus that we have is on leaders because we want to see the church multiply. We we believe that there are is a need for 160,000 new churches in the United States of America. It's going to take a lot of work, but we come alongside leaders and pastors and missional church planters so that they can help gain more and more capacity and or confidence, whatever they need, to multiply missional communities. Most of our churches today, and I shared this earlier today, are functioning like greenhouses. And greenhouses are Uh, a great way to grow flowers, a great way to grow plants. I was raised in the greenhouse of Village Baptist Church in Oklahoma City, not too far from here, Hefner in May. Uh, That's where I became a Christian. Dr. Robert Stuckey was our pastor. He baptized me in that little chapel off to the right before they built that new thing. But in a greenhouse, it's a very controlled environment where you know where the inputs are coming spiritually, emotionally, socially, and you know exactly what's going on. It's very, very comfortable. But today's world is less like a greenhouse, and it's more wild out there in the world of postmodernism, where there's 160 million lost people who are not raised in the church, in the millennial and Gen Z generations. And it's more like this. It's more like a wild field. And we need to learn how to get comfortable in a wild field and thrive as a church in the wild field. For some of you that have maybe witnessed or struggled where you see people who are repotting from the greenhouse into the wild field of the city of postmodernism, you see they leave their faith. It's not taken seriously anymore. We're not repotting very well because we didn't see the change coming and we need to learn how to grow in the wild field. In the wild field, you face 
animals and weather patterns and total chaos in the normal field, but there's one flower, you call it a weed in your suburban uh, gardens or lawns, but the dandelion is a flower, and it th flourishes everywhere. And we want to encourage Christians to think of themselves like dandelions. Wouldn't it be great to see those little petals, uh, those little parachute white things that come off the head of a dandelion would be to us like meaningful conversations where you live, where you work out, where you play, where you learn, in the university, in the classroom, wherever you are, that there's little, little conversations, meaningful conversations where you're gifted, you're motivated, you're skilled to turn conversations to Jesus Christ and hopefully see people come into the kingdom that way. But wouldn't it be great to see us out there understanding the new cultures, understanding the new peoples, and showing them Jesus by sharing the gospel with them as we care for their needs. That's what our vision is. Let me tell you a story about a guy named Travis. When I met Travis, he was carrying some shame. I didn't know that. He was also carrying uh, about uh, a lack of security or certainty about his career and whether or not he should go into full-time work as a, an artist because he was a flourishing artist in Kansas City, but he wasn't making enough money. He didn't know what to do. Now, I didn't know that he was insecure about his, his career. I didn't know that he was dealing with a lot of shame when I met him. But when I met him, I asked him this. I said, Travis, tell me about your journey and how you ended up here. Because he floated into New Life City Church where I, uh, I'm a teaching pastor in Kansas City downtown on the Missouri side. And just that simple, sometime I'd like to hear about your journey, it led to him spending the night with Karen and I, led to multiple coffee conversations, extended fellowship, and his, he became a Christian, and this is at his baptism. By the way, my haircut normally looks like that, and my kids challenged me when I said uh, that I'm not getting a haircut until there's a vaccine. They laughed, and then they challenged me to stick to that, and so for right now, that's kind of what I'm doing. And, uh, but next time you see me, I'll probably look a little more normal. But, but Travis's faith took root he worked with our youth at our church. He's been on mission trip uh, in Haiti. You can see his story on our webpage at churchmovements.com. But that's just a little story. Let's call it a, a divine drama. There are three players in this divine drama of Travis becoming a Christian. One is Travis himself. He was clearly on a spiritual journey. The second is God, God himself, who's the master at work, telling people how and why they need him, and he's at work, and of course, I didn't see that. I believed it. And then the third person is me. So there's three participants, God, me, and Travis. And each of these participants illustrate something that I'd like to teach today about what it means to be a cojourner. I'll explain the definition in a second. But they illustrate that everyone is on a spiritual journey. God created us as spiritual beings. Some are moving away from God, some are moving toward God, and some are just stuck with multiple questions. But everybody's on a journey. We don't start their spiritual journeys by inviting them to church or bringing up Jesus in a conversation. God has already begun it. We just join them. We come alongside them and discover where there are where they are, just like I did with Travis, because everybody's on a spiritual journey. 
The second principle of a co-journer is God is already at work. He is the Lord of the harvest. He orchestrates people's circumstances in each person's journey. He speaks. He draws them to himself by his spirit. And evangelism is always the work of God. I always say that the center of Scripture is Jonah 2.9. Jonah 2.9 says, salvation is from the Lord. He's very eager for people to know him. So evangelism is his work. It's, we come alongside him in this work. And eventually, there I am, an ordinary believer, but I believe this truth that God wants to use me in Travis's journey. You've got to believe in all three of these principles or you'll be less than effective as a co-journer. But God wants us to use us in the lives of others with whom we intersect in our everyday life. This is true with everybody you intersect with. They're on a spiritual journey and God is at work. And he may want to use you right then, right there, even in a dandelion moment where you just float your, your attempt to see where they are into that conversation. Now, what I experienced as a co-journer with Travis is what we want to see the church or the body of, the body of Christ experience over and over again, and that is the body of Christ engaging in meaningful spiritual conversations that turn to the gospel as we discover where people are in their spiritual journey. And that's a fulfillment of what Paul wrote about here in Colossians 4, where he says, Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation, not your dogmatic preaching sermon, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, I haven't explained cojourners. That's not a real word. It's a compound. Co, the prefix, means with, and of course, you know what a journer is. So you get the idea that we're joining others in their spiritual journey. I love this word. I, I still use the word evangelist, but if, if I was forced to, to pick another word for an evangelist, I'd say co-journer. I just love that idea. In John 4, we, we see Jesus acting like a co-journer. He talks with the woman at the well in Samaria. And so what I would like to do is with you briefly look at clues uh, that Jesus is showing us as to how he understood his audience and how he reached out to that audience. Now, people today expect you and I, once they find out we're followers of Jesus, they expect us. This is, there, are, there are exceptions, but the vast majority expect us to be non-listeners that we open our pie holes all the time and don't stop talking until we have to take a breath, and we have an agenda, and that we're uninterested in normal life like Art or Bob Dylan or the city or whatever. I don't know why I said Bob Dylan, except I really do like him a lot. But, <laughs> but trust is broken with these younger two generations in particular and Jesus models for us in this conversation how to rebuild it. So we're going to get real practical today, but let me just read our text, and I'm going to read parts of the story that you're probably very familiar with as I go. Jesus left Judea, and he came to a, a city of Samaria called Sychar, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by, thus by the well, 
It was about the sixth hour. That means he arrived there around noon, and he was very thirsty. And he, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And in parenthesis, but in the inspired Word of God, it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's noon. It's a hot day. Jesus is thirsty. And she was there apparently alone. And this unveil avails something first we encounter that is true of a cojourner. A cojourner enters the world of other people and uses natural life situations he entered her world and started a conversation. Now, let's just hit the pause button for a second. You and I should assume that life where God as the HR director of the kingdom of God has put you, called you, wants you to be, that God has, is, is giving you opportunities, that your very life will yield opportunities to share Jesus Christ with other people. Now, not all conversations, not all situations, but God is the one who sets up divine appointments for you and for me, and He wants us to be ready in those moments to sow the gospel. God ordains meetings for us for the purpose of helping connect people to Jesus. Now, to recognize those moments, it's going to take a certain outlook a certain perspective. These three principles of a cojourner that I've always already mentioned would be certainly part of it, but you and I should have the perspective that, that includes God's love, that His love and His sovereignty has actually put you in places along the spiritual journey of others. He does, He will, He has. The second perspective that you need and I need, is man's need for him. You have to enter those and go, you know, the people I'm encountering, everybody here needs Jesus. You know how I know that? In, in Colossians 1.16, it says, all things have been created by Jesus, and all things have been created for Jesus. That means until each living creature on this planet is living with a love for Jesus with a kingdom-first mentality, wanting to see Jesus uplifted, adored, and is in love with the abundant life that Jesus died to give them, until then, they are not living out their created purpose. So when you enter into an, a, a moment, you have to believe, man has this need for him. He was created for him. And you have to believe that Jesus sovereignly puts you there, and you're investigating how far you want the, uh, He wants to use you in the conversation you could possibly be having. St. Augustine said, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in You. That's true of every person that we meet. But there's a third thing that needs to be in our perspective, is, and that is that preparation is required. The more prepared you are, the more effective you will be. Now, just think of the things you prepare for. You prepare to mow your lawn. You prepare to meet with your tax person. 
You prepare to go to the doctor. You prepare for appointments. You prepare for job interviews. We need to prepare for various moments in our lives to see if we can seed them with the gospel. Circumstances, impressions, questions people ask, interests that they have, you walk into these moments believing that the Holy Spirit has set it up and has prepared you for it. And we see this with Jesus. We notice something else in the next verse. It says, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. She is surprised. She is shocked. A cojourner crosses boundaries. Jesus crosses three boundaries just by talking to the woman. And the first is a man didn't talk to a woman like this. Women typically went by groups to the well, but she's alone. They would have at a time of community fellowship, they draw water, talk, and get, take well water back to their homes. But she came, she could have come earlier in the day or later in the day, but, but she's, she's not with anybody else. Why? She's alone. Why? We can surmise that this woman was a social outcast. She had been married five times, which we'll read about in a second, and she's currently living with her sixth man unmarried. So her morality is in question, and this is probably why she's alone. But it wasn't enough that she was a Samaritan. It wasn't enough that she was a Samaritan woman. It was popular to believe that Samaritan women, by Jews they would believe, that Samaritan women are in a constant state of menstruation, that they're ceremonial, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. They're cut off from His people. So it was very strange that Jesus was talking to a woman, and particularly a Samaritan woman being a Jew. And her surprise shows that Jesus crossed a boundary. We have a few boundaries we could cross and surprise a few people that we white Baby boomer evangelicals can love other people that normally are unloved by people who look like us. We can cross these boundaries. But there's a, a second one, and that is a Jew talking to a Samaritan. After the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722, almost all of the Israelites were deported. Some stayed behind, and they intermarried with Samaritan foreigners, or excuse me, Assyrian foreigners, and they were introduced to idolatry from this Assyrian culture, and they left the culture of God far behind. So they had a very bad reputation, Samaritan Israelites left behind that became Assyrian, multi-God worshiping people. So it was very strange that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan, not just a woman. Samaritans came to be viewed as both children of political rebels and impure, tainted, if you will, with unacceptable religious practices. They were a class beneath the Jew. But the third reason why it's, it's a boundary being crossed is that there was um, 
the saying, there's many sayings in the, this time that it was inappropriate for a rabbi to talk to any woman. I don't have time to preach that, but all of this just to say that there's an action point for us. Imago Dei, it's the Latin expression for image of God. You and I have to look past the external. We have to share Christ. We have to love. We have to converse with people that others in our culture might despise. We need to throw away our assumptions like they won't be interested. We have to throw away our assumptions and overcome our prejudices because they look different or they say or they talk about things that are different, and we have to see their hearts. We need to know them and invite them into a conversation and just relax. Just invite into a conversation and relax. All of those around us reflect the image of God. They are important because they were made in His image. The image of God in man and woman means that God made all human beings, and they are on a journey because they were made in God's image. Marred, marred by sin, just like yours, your image is marred by sin, but still meaningful. They still have meaningful lives, and we have to see it that way. No matter how weird or different they are, they are pursuing peace just like you are. They want a good night's sleep just like you do. All battle anxiety and fight the, the responsibilities and relaxed time of their life. They want well-being. Our conversations should reflect that everyone we meet is important. Their passions, their stories, they have worldviews that have been shaped somewhere, and they have things that they value and it's about learning how they came to believe what they hold dear. People do what makes sense to them. Find out why. And as you listen, take a posture of listening, you can get the gospel in and show them there's a better why. There's a better thing to believe in. There's real truth to embrace. And we realize as, as believers that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy man's thirst, period. So, we take the gospel to all, all of them, with love, with understanding, with grace, with wisdom, and, and we honor their response even if they, they reject Christ. It's more about moments with people, not events in our greenhouse. We have to get out there and listen and get the gospel in or they're going to go to hell. So dandelion in an open field. You kind of get this idea here? It's really important. In John chapter 4, it uh, goes on and says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And, and that's a great clue here in a second. And who gave us this well and drank from it for himself? Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become to him a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the, the next principle we see a cojourner initiates 
and guides the conversation. Jesus doesn't yet say, and she does not yet perceive in this part of the conversation that he is the Messiah. She is completely unaware of his glory at this point. Later, she is so impacted by the words of Jesus and that she goes and tells the whole village. And she moves through a process. You're a man talking to a Samaritan woman. You're a prophet, and now you're the Messiah. There's a process that she, it dawns on her slowly. And in this process, this was something that Jesus initiated and he directed. How? He used powerful imagery of promising her living water. And he implies that he is the source of this living water. What is Jesus doing? He's guiding. He's guiding this conversation. He's letting the light in gradually, lifting the veil so that this woman could understand the gospel. And so he uses this allegorical expression of living water. What is the real meaning behind living water, behind this image? Well, it's a fresh running supply of His goodness, of His grace, of walking with Him every day, every moment. It's the transforming power of His grace. I wish I had time to tell you my testimony. I was such a, a, a wretched person, and God changed me. The prophet said that God would pour out His Spirit. Jesus is offering her living water to satisfy her thirst for true life. She still has not discovered it. And this is why He does what we want the whole church to do. He enters their world. He entered her world. He invites a conversation, and He overcame so many social barriers to do it. We have to get really good at that. Because the territory of every human heart needs this living water. God is grieved to see any person broken and thirsty, and He'll do anything and everything to get Him, get His love to them. What Jesus is really saying to the one at this point is like, I can change your life, and I really want to. That's what He's saying. Evangelism here, too, is both an art and a science. Let me explain this. The science of evangelism, I'm using it this way, to say the, what the raw essence of the gospel is, that God loves you, that you're a sinner, that Jesus died in your place, shed His blood on the cross, rose from the dead to give you a new life. That's the raw essence of the gospel, and it has to be communicated clearly and understood. But there is an art side to evangelism. And that is the way that we communicate the raw essence of the gospel. We use color and imagery and style and story and questions and testimony. There's so many things that we have to use to get out the raw essence of the gospel. God has connected with mankind a number of ways. Think about it. He connected with man in these ways here through proverbs and poetry and songs and word pictures. He used the word picture in Ezekiel of the valley of dry bones. 
He used hyperbole, figures of speech like, you blind guides, you strain a gnat, but swallow a camel. This is our evangelist friend, Lord of the Harvest Jesus. We have to get good at the art of evangelism like he was. He uses living water because he's at a well. The conversation goes on. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come up here all the time to draw water. So she's responding, yet she's missing Jesus' meaning. So he just keeps directing the conversation. Verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands, and the man you, are now, you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, put yourself in the Samaritan woman's. It's like, what? How did he know this? Where did this come true? I, I'm convicted. Who are you? How did you know that? I mean, so many things are happening in just this little moment. So what is Jesus doing is what we should do as co-journers. Make the gospel clear and make it personal. To make it personal, you have to know the person. You have to listen to the person. And as we ask good questions and listen, we can. So Jesus is helping her get real honest with herself. She has no husband. She has a sinful past. She likely feels unworthy, thrown out lonely, she doesn't have a friend to go to the well with, and the current man she's with doesn't love her enough to commit to her in marriage. She's not doing well. And asking the woman to go get her husband, which is something that she could not do, serves to reveal her brokenness and her sin. We have to do that too when we share the gospel. The entire conversation would be misunderstood if we did not observe that Jesus is subtly bringing up moral impossibilities for her. The gospel and its beauty has to reveal uh, the darkness of our sin. It can't be fully known without confronting the bad news of sin, and so it's important that the law be known and felt so that the gospel can be meaningful. You are dead in sin. You're in a situation from which you cannot save yourself, no matter how hard you try. And we'll not analyze this next section, but you can look at it. He points her to the Father. He didn't debate the two claims of the places of worship about Gerizim and Jerusalem. He didn't debate it. He just says it's all going to be bypassed by those who worship the Father. In case you wonder what the Gerizim is, Mount Gerizim in 400 B.C., uh, the outcast Samaritans, they built a temple there so that they could be faithful to their Jewish God. But they were forbidden to come to Jerusalem and worship in the real temple. So she had a question about this. But what we see here is that they found some common ground. In making the gospel personal, find common ground. For them, at first, it was water and religion. 
It was worship. It was history. We have to look for common ground. We have to discover what's below the surface, their concerns. And when you can, when you can sense that somebody cares about you, don't you open up? They'll do the same thing, and that's what she's doing. When they sense that you care, they will open up and share their life, and they'll provide a glimpse below the surface, and they'll give you below-the-surface look at their life so that you can look for traces of the Spirit. They're on a spiritual journey. God's at work, and you're, you're trying to find out how is God at work in this person's life. She showed interest in history, worship, her people, who the Messiah is. When the Messiah gets here, he'll explain all this to us. There's so much common ground here. And he builds on it, and he answers her question, guides, and eventually reveals himself. And he says, I who speak to you am he. He made the gospel very clear. I am the one who can make everything to you very clear right now. You said someday when he comes, he goes, nope, it's here and now. I am the Messiah. I am, I am the one you're waiting for. So he basically is saying, you're in sin, truly you have no husband. She's exposed in chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. He says, salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans only read five books of the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. So they didn't have the Psalms, they didn't have Isaiah, they didn't have Micah. There were so many unknown things they knew. They didn't know about the Messiah, and he's revealing to her so much by rejecting the other books of the Bible. Uh, there's so much they didn't know, and so she lacked this revelation of who the Messiah was. But he says, the hour is here and now, and let's get after it. And she said, you can drink from me. He said, if you drink from me, you'll be saved. You'll have abundant life. You'll live eternally. This is very important. He's basically saying, I can change your life, and that's why I'm here. So, the rest of the story is very interesting. I'm not going to go into it, but Jesus deeply touched her heart. She forgets her water pot, why she was at the well in the first place. She rejects even Jesus' request for water, and she bolts. She flies out of there. And where does she go? Those she wanted to avoid by going at noon, are the ones she's seeking out now and saying, I found the Messiah. Is this the one we've been waiting for? And she's likely converted because the whole town, it says, many discovered that Jesus was the Savior of the world. So this listener becomes a messenger. This lonely one is brought back into the community and used as a witness for Christ. She convinces them, and the Samaritans confess in verse 42, if you look at later in the story, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, all from this tiny conversation that lasted about five minutes. A moment where he crossed barriers. He started a conversation he guided that conversation to himself. So Jesus is modeling the four roles of a cojourner. Um, these are the four roles where you enter into the spiritual journey of others by being an explorer. You ask great questions. You try to discover 
where they are spiritually because it's unknown territory for you. You don't, you don't know where they are spiritually. Ask questions. That's the first job of an evangelist. And I hope that encourages you. You don't have to be seminary trained or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or whatever. You just have to listen and ask good questions. You can do this. Explore. The second role is a guide. They join you on the journey to help you show the way. I, I love guides. Whenever I've gone into a bat cave before or toured the city of London or Hermitage in St. Petersburg, fabulous museum, by the way. It's where the prodigal son is. Guides know stuff, and they're just revealing what they know in such interesting ways. You can do that too. You need to know what the gospel is. You need to know how to share your story so you can guide what you can use, living water, a Beatles song, a book, a quote by Dostoevsky, a sermon that you heard, whatever, and guide the discussion to the Word of God and share the living Word of God so that they can become alive. And we can help show them Jesus. And when a person comes to an obstacle, you have to learn how to be a builder over that obstacle. They're going to they're gonna go, I don't believe in God, or I believe in this or that. And they might say things that offend you. They may share political views or social views that, that, that offend you. You're there to lead them to Jesus Christ. Just listen and don't be so shocked. Don't create a barrier. Listen to their barriers and get over them. I don't believe in God. Well, gosh, that's, that's ridiculous. You have bad parents or something? Well, there's a new barrier, and you created it. No, just listen. They have worldviews. They, they have a place they came to that they value or don't, or the pain came from somewhere. Find out and build over it through gentle persuasion, and don't forget to pray for wisdom, for insight, for knowing how to proceed in the conversation. And then lastly, when someone comes to Christ, you have to disciple them and you have to learn the role of being a, a mentor. So today, I'll, I'm going to close just by giving you a, a couple of ideas. But first of all, I just want you to know that, you know, I'm a professional. I'm a professional missionary. Pretty cool. I'm an expert. I am. I'm an expert. Um, in, in, if you define expert this way, and I've already shared it with some of the people in the room, but an X being an unknown quantity and a spurt being a drip under pressure. So that's, that's all I am. I, I took a picture in the men's bathroom. For you women, you don't know why I did it, but I took a picture of a urinal with my name over the urinal. It's like, come, come to barbecue tonight. So I, I texted to my kids, and I go, I'm famous. I'm, I'm really famous. <laughs> They have my name over a urinal. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was for the barbecue tonight. But I'm only being, you know, humorous with you just to say this. I, I have been exposed to a lot of, can you imagine how many churches I've been in? I've preached in, I've met. You have a great church. It's unique and so this first little reflection point is, I want to encourage you to take advantage of every opportunity that these dear people, leaders, servant leaders, fired up for Jesus, offer you. Take advantage of everything you can, and we'll come back and help in any way we can to help you normalize this in your life. Sharing the gospel, nope, it's normal. How to make disciples, 
And yes, I'm not unrealistic in how difficult it is for it to become normal, but it can be. And then second is I would encourage you to use two um, tools of a cojourner with wisdom and confidence. And I want to just say I use this more than anything. When you're in a conversation with somebody and it feels like, you know, we're, we're kind of hitting it off, whether it's an acquaintance or a, a family member at a wedding or a funeral or a colleague, you can say, hey, sometime I'd like to hear more of your story. I'd like to hear of your journey, your spiritual journey. Would you be up for that? Hey, sometime I'd just like to hear more of your spiritual journey. Would you be up for that? I've never had anybody say no. And when you meet with them, just listen and look for ways to get the gospel in. Eight out of ten times after you listen long, they'll say, hey, the next time, I'd love to hear your story. And you're one conversation away from sharing the gospel. I'd really encourage you to learn, take a picture of that and learn that sentence. If you say your journey, I always say, I'd like to hear your your." your journey, your spiritual journey, would you be up for that? I like to look, throw the word spiritual in there so that they know when they ask me that they're going to hear a spiritual stuff from me. And if they say, what do you mean by spiritual? What do you mean? Just go, uh, whatever it means to you. What gives you meaning, purpose? Do you have a faith in God or not? Whatever. Just diffuse it. You have to diffuse it. And then when they ask you, what about your journey? That doesn't give you permission to go, I want my pastor. He's on a great live stream. I've recorded. Listen to this for 15 minutes. Don't do that. <laughs> when they ask for your story, just say in three or four sentences, learn to say your story in three or four sentences, and then unpack it later in the conversation. You can do this by choosing two or three words that describe your life before you came to know Christ and two or three words to describe your life since you came to know Christ. And use words that are meant for people, real people, not the pews. Um, I, my three words are postponing my emptiness and moving toward abundance. And then find a gospel-rich or a gospel-pointing phrase to connect those two or three or six words. And here's what people say. Hey, next time I want to hear your story, Dave. And, uh, and they go, tell me your story. I always open up with three or four sentences that sound like this. You know Walter. You know Sophia. You know Clay. There was a time in my life that I was putting so many things in and I realized whatever I put in, I was only postponing my emptiness. I got really tired of it. So I began to read the New Testament, and I discovered that my title, my entire concept about God was wrong. He wants a relationship. And since then, I've been gladly following him, and I'm moving toward abundance. They're always like, oh, there's a lot of questions I have about what you just, what did you discover from the New Testament? How was your concept of God wrong? Well, I feel empty too. What, what did you put into your life? And then I'm unpacking the larger part of my story. And then you get the gospel in. 
So let me close uh, today just by reminding you of what the gospel is. And I want to give you an opportunity to receive him in case you haven't already. It'd be unloving of me if I didn't give you that opportunity. Jesus um, has two gifts that he wants to give you. And in this gift, uh, in this hand is the gift of forgiveness. Jesus died for your sins. He demonstrated his love in that while you were yet a sinner, he died in your place to forgive you of your sin. And that gives him the power and the right and the ability to give you forgiveness. Do you need forgiveness? Do you want forgiveness? Do you want to be forgiven? He offers it to you. And he rose from the dead, and it gave him another gift to give you, a new life. Do you, you have to take both, forgiveness and a new life. Do you want forgiveness? Do you want a new life? Jesus can give it to you. Faith is a decision of your mind, will, and your emotions. In your mind, you have to accept certain facts to be true. Jesus died for you, and he rose from the dead to give you a new life. You have to believe that. You have to accept that. It's a decision of your emotions in the sense that you just, you got to want along, you want to belong to Jesus. You got to want that. And it's a decision of your will to just finally turn over your heart to him. Because as many as have received him, John 1.12 says, to them he gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So I'm going to close with a prayer. And then when I say amen, somebody will come up here and close the service off for, for us. But if you've never received Christ, you can silently pray this prayer with me. Okay? Why don't we pray? This is for those who've never received Christ. Lord Jesus, I need you. I need forgiveness. I want the new life that only you can give me. Please forgive me of my sin. Thank you for dying in my place to forgive me, to make me right with you. Come into my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Thank you for coming into my life as you said you would, because I'm asking in faith. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer for the first time and you really meant it, I'm not hearing uh, Hallelujah Chorus in the background. You might be, but probably not. And you didn't see anybody in the room sprout angel wings, uh, but he did answer your prayer because he promised he would. And you can know for sure that he's given you forgiveness of sin and a new life. And I'd really encourage you to tell somebody that you made that decision before you leave today. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening.